Osiris. Hey, this is Jay Blakesburg, and this podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris podcast. Osiris connects you with podcasts, videos, and live experiences about the artists and topics we all love. Check out OsirisPod.com and sign up for the newsletter to stay in the loop about new podcasts and events. See you out there. Hey everybody, welcome to Female Centrics. We are the first female hosted fish community podcast. And today I'm pretty excited. Uh, we have we are we begin interviewing Jay Blakesburg. Jay Blakesburg is one of the industry's most sought after rock photographers, and he has been part of the Grateful Dead scene for thirty years, over thirty years. He joined in on photo- uh, photographing fish way back in like '93, really an integral part from Oswego '99 through '04, and even into a bit of '09. He has uh, his works include anything from Rolling Stones, guitar player, Vanity Square, Esquire. This is huge for female centrics. We are psyched. Um, he started his, uh, I guess, career in a sense at the Ibian and Height um, and Hate Ashbury, you know, sorry, Hate Street in San Francisco, where he was there to photograph the birth of alternative rock, which, you know, Jane's Addictions, Pixies, Soundgarden, and uh, moved right through. So we have a really great interview for you guys today about that one. Um, and as you guys all know, we are part of the Osiris podcast network and we there's maybe about 30 of us podcasters at this point um that is part of this network and we cover an entire range of subjects um recently i have to say our you know guy in charge whatnot um rjb and the boys from helping friendly podcast they have been spitting out quick hits quick hits for uh this fall tour which is fall tour is on fire um and really been on point for that whole piece so check uh osiris out at osirispod.com to see all the other uh type of podcasts we have so with that, I have to say I'm pretty excited. We have uh, Ben and Jerry's is our sponsor for this episode for actually November. And, uh, you know, with the holidays right around the corner, what would you get the fish fan who has everything? Of course, ice cream besides tickets. But if they have everything, they have the tickets, right? Um, and as we noted the last one, just don't put it into the stocking because that would probably melt, even though you'll get the nice Pollock container afterwards, which is always a collectible. But Ben & Jerry's has collaborated with Fish and the Waterwell Foundation to create a limited flavor. It's called It's Ice Cream. And it's a caramel malt ice cream with almond toffee pieces, fudge fish, and caramel swirl, which sounds delicious for excavating because I kind of share my ice cream, but I don't really like to, and I tend to get all the good stuff out of there. I'm kind of a jerk when it comes to it. This sounds like a great ice cream to be <laughs> to be that that person. Uh, the packaging and a very limited T-shirt were designed by Jim Pollock, our guy. A portion of the proceeds for the ice cream and all of the proceeds for the teas are donated by, to the Water Whale Foundation. 
Um, so with that, the ice cream and the teas can be ordered at store.benjerry.com. And if you use that promo code Osiris, you can get free shipping on all orders over $50 for the rest of 2018. Pretty cool. So there's also because, you know, we're, we're, I don't think we're ever going to let Curveball go. So there's also a special Curveball fish food water whale tea that um, Ben & Jerry's created for the canceled festival. And that also can be purchased online as well. So eat up your Ben & Jerry's because it's delicious. Thank you. So we are going to take a quick break and be back with our interview with Jay Blakesburg. So be sure to check out his Instagram which is Jay Blakesburg. And with the holidays coming, you guys are going to need some ideas for gifts. So uh, check out his website. Was it rockoutbooks.com to see the projects that we discuss in this podcast because they're all for sale and they're glorious and amazing. So thanks. All righty. Well, everybody, we are back with a really exciting interview um, that we have. We're be having with Jay Blakesburg, which I had to uh, introduce him a bit uh, earlier in it. But, you know, he is one of the music industry's most sought after rock and roll photographers. And we are pretty pumped to have him. So welcome, Jay. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for, for taking the time to be with us. You're over in San Fran, and we got the time the time uh, difference, which I have to say this morning, I was psyched when I woke up. I was like, oh, no, it's 10.15. No, it's 9.15. Woohoo! Yeah, I know. We, we got that extra hour, which was great. Yes, yes, definitely, because you've been traveling around uh, the country a bit, so you've been kind of back and forth between the time zones. I'm sure it's not yeah. easy. Correct. I've been. I, I was uh, the true definition of Rocktober. I was all over the place <laughs> in October. I, I back and forth between coasts. I was in Barcelona uh, on this very cool music immersion with the string, some of the string cheese guys and some of the green scaf, green sky bluegrass guys, and some of the Terrapin Family Band people and uh, Holly Bowling and Nikki Bloom. So what? I was in Barcelona, Spain, with all those people. I came back. I was in. San Francisco for a couple of days. I went on tour for a few days with Bob Weir. I came back to San Francisco for a day or two or three, and then I went to New York for a week and did uh, Mo Halloween uh, at the Fillmore in Philly. Nice. Uh, and then I did uh, three uh, Phil Lesh Terrapin Family Band shows, uh, one with Twiddle as well, uh, for Halloween run up at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester. Wow. Wow. So you stay busy. That needless to say. <laughs> yeah, rocks Rocktober really rocked. And then last night and then I flew back from New York yesterday and last night was Jim James at the Fox Theater in Oakland. Sweet. Well good, yeah. good, good. Well it's nice. I hope you're you're enjoying I hope it's sunny though. It's beautiful here, so Nice yes, day we're there. having a nice California fall day. Awesome, awesome. So, so I'm going to jump into this because I was joking with you before we had started here that I almost wanted to say, okay, it's 1986, go. <laughs> Tell me year by year because you have so many amazing things that, that you know, you've been up to over the past few years here, to say the least. So um, in, in 1986, uh, you became the house photographer for the Rock Club. Is it the I-Beam? On hate yes, yep. correct. Yep. Yeah. In San Francisco. So this was also, you know, the birthplace of alternative rock. And you were shooting bands like Jane's Addictions, Pixies, Soundgarden, to, same name, to name a few. Um, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but during this time, and you know, before that, because I know what we were saying, 1978. You know, you that's when you went to your first Dead show. Um, you know, you really started to become a like the photographer for the dead. So my question to you is if you want to, you know, go back a little bit on, you know, what was going on in 1978 and what led you specifically into the Grateful Dead, you know, so how did this end up happening and what year and when did you really start touring with the Grateful Dead? All right. Sure. So I actually saw my first Grateful Dead concert in 1977. Um, I was 15 years old and, um, and you know, like most things like this, it, it revolves around an older brother or an older sister or a friend who might be a little bit older to kind of turn you on to these things. And, um, so for me, uh, my sister, my older sister, Jan brought me to English town. I was 15. Um, it was exactly a year later. So English town was a big labor day weekend concert on the East coast with the grateful dead. They actually did four big labor day weekend concerts in a row, 77, 78, 79, and 80. And I went to all, I went to all four of those. You said English town went, where was this? Uh, English town, New Jersey, 1977. Yeah. And then 78 was uh, giant stadium. Uh, in uh, Rutherford, East Rutherford, New Jersey, um, uh, also known as the Meadowlands. And that was the first Grateful Dead concert that I brought a camera to. And uh, I was 16 years old, I guess. Um, Borrowed my dad's camera, took some pictures, and those were the first photos that I took of the Grateful Dead. What was the date Uh, of that show again, exactly? uh, Let's see. I believe that English Town was nine... 377 and the Meadowlands was 9278. Wow. Rochester was 9179 and Lewiston, Maine was 961980. Those were the four big, those four big Labor Day weekend shows. Um, So, yeah, so I brought my dad's camera. He trusted me with it and um, got a couple good shots. Uh, uh, Right after that, that September 78 show, the band went to. Egypt. I was too young to know about it or go to it for sure. Um, and then uh, a couple of months later, they played a small deadheads only show at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. That was a little like 2000 person theater in North Jersey. And you had to win like a special ticket by mailing in a letter to a deadheads mailing address in New Jersey. And uh, if you so- got a ticket, it, it was a gold foil ticket. And ah. I got one of those, those gold foil Willy Wonka tickets. So wait a minute. So you had to write a letter to a deadhead in Jersey in order to get these tickets? <laughs> no, to a deadhead address. Like it was oh, like dead. dead, like a deadhead fan club address. Okay, okay. And so, yeah. and what, what, and what had, what did this letter have to entail? What did you have to say? And do you remember what you said? Uh, I, I, I believe it was just like a, you know, send a letter, you know, saying if you want a tickets to this special Deadheads only show. So in, in, in November of 78, after they came back from Egypt, they were like on a full East Coast tour. They were playing arenas. They were playing, you know, the Hartford Civic Center. I mean, they were playing, yeah. you know, 10, 15, 20,000 seat arenas. And then there was this one show at the Capitol that was, you know, 2000 people or 1800 people, whatever that club held. And so in order to get a ticket, you had to sort of like, uh, show your intent, um, that Ah. you were, that you were a deadhead, that you were a true and tried deadhead. And you deserve to be in that little, like that little club in New Jersey with the band. And then, and then, um, uh, Garcia ended up getting the flu and it was, and it was a live radio broadcast on WNEW New York, which was, you know, the big rock radio station in New York at the time. And, uh, so they broadcast it live and they played really well. You can actually see all this on YouTube. It's a, it's on YouTube. Uh, uh, but Jerry could barely sing. Oh, and no. then apparently, 
And then apparently the next night they went up to Hartford, Connecticut, and everybody got into the show, and everybody was dosed, and the place was electrified. And then Bob Weir came out on stage and said, hey, everybody, we're really sorry, but Garcia's really sick with the flu, and we're canceling the show. And so everybody, even after they all came into the show, everybody all had to shuffle out into the cold winter night. And uh, one of those rare moments where the Grateful Dead canceled the show because a band member was sick, and it happened to be Jerry. Wow. Pure chaos, I imagine. Yeah, I was I was not at the Hartford show. Uh, again, even for me, you know, being 16 um, and, uh, uh, you know, convincing my mother to let me go to Hartford, Connecticut from where I lived in New Jersey, that was like a probably six or seven hour drive. You know, that was not an easy task to convince her to let me do that. It took a little bit of doing until about a year later when I was able to, or six months later, I was able to convince my mother to like, let me get in cars with strangers and drive long distances. God bless our mothers, right? (laughs) Before the cell phones, all of it. (laughs) Exactly. They had no fucking idea what we were doing. Exactly. (laughs) Mom, I'm going on fish tour. Don't worry about it. I'll call you from a rest stop for about two seconds via right. collect exactly. <laughs> gonna be with about ten thousand of my best friends yeah <laughs> yeah and and uh, i'll call you from payphone with an illegal credit card that we stole from from exxon or you know or some other corporation which was that was a whole nother thing that happened on dead tour back in the early 80s as there was a whole black market of of uh corporate uh telephone credit card numbers what? that oh yeah it was okay. a whole thing touch base on that one because that that's interesting that was a whole thing that was started by the yippies which was you know albert uh, hoffman and and jerry rubin there were and paul krasner there was a a newspaper called the yippie newspaper and every year they would publish like the top 10 corporate um credit card calling number you know uh, uh numbers so that you could dial in a credit card number like a it was like a a Pac Bell, AT&T, whatever the phone service was at the time, you know, it was the Ma Bell system. And you just, you could call your parents and, and the phone company actually came on tour because there was all this phone fraud going on on dead tour. And I actually had a buddy uh, who got busted by the phone company um, for using these credit cards and, you know, calling his parents, you know, on these credit cards, sure. and, you know, cause of course they called his parents and like, do you know somebody that might have called you from Chicago, Michigan, Cleveland, you know? No. And it's like, wait, that's all the shows that my son to went on Grateful Dead Tour. Yeah, that was my son. They're like, you owe us $2,000. Oh, you know what's funny? So I jumped on in 94, and and but like specific, my first tour was 96. But I feel like I remember something about that, like these illicit, like, you know, phone cards that were going around back in the day, you know? I did, like, I feel like that was still happening a bit but did you say that it was like done by a certain time i don't really know i mean once our friends started once the once we started checking into hotels and we'd see people from the phone company checking in next to us yeah, yeah. like you know we knew it was like not only the dea were following us but the phone company was following <laughs> us yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, i mean pretty much you know so yeah. uh, i don't know when it ended but you know we stopped when when we started seeing people get caught we stopped using those to, to, you know, call our friends and family from, I mean, people would like go in a venue and get on a payphone and call with these credit cards and then just leave the phone off the hook so you could hear the music for the whole show because, you know, because the Grateful Dead had speakers out in the hallway so the deadheads could dance, ah, right? That's so you, 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 you would see payphones off the hook all the time. Actually, I think I have a picture of some deadhead like in the oh, mid to late 80s, like holding up the phone receiver in the hallway of like a dead show and at, at uh, Kaiser Auditorium. And, you know, obviously he's just like, you know. His friends back home, listen to this. Wow. So it's like the early years of streaming, you know? Yeah, I was going to say that was like the earliest, earliest form of streaming a show. Wow. (laughs) Illegal credit card number with a (laughs) payphone. 
<laughs> That's amazing. So, so oh my god, yeah, I love it. So, so now you're getting into these shows, and um, you know, this is seventy eight, seventy nine, whatnot. Like, you know, and and at what point, like, do you know, do you think the boys like saw your work, you know, so that they were they were engaging you and saying, hey, you know, come take pictures of us? What, what was uh, that? decades later? Oh, decades. okay, okay. Oh yeah. So in seventy nine, mm-hmm. I uh, actually was published. Uh, for the first time where I was paid money, uh, a buddy who I met on Dead Tour in the summer of 79 was going to write a review of either that Rochester Labor Day show or the one at Madison Square Garden the next week. And he connected me to this newspaper called the Aquarian Weekly, which is a free weekly newspaper in New Jersey, still exists to this day, you know, similar to every other free weekly in every other part of the country today. Sure. And uh, they ran two of my photos from Rochester in a review. For, it was weird because the photos were taken outdoors and they used them for a review for an indoor show at the garden a week later. <laughs> and uh, and I was paid $7.50 for each of those photos for a total of $15. But, you know, for a 17-year-old kid who was dealing acid in that $100 in his back pocket anyway, yeah. the $15 was negligible. It was more the fact that I actually got paid for my photography yeah, or something. exactly. You got into and I was, something. Mm-hmm. I, I was recognized. You know, the Grateful Dead, it's funny, the, the Grateful Dead always let you bring a camera into a show, which is why there's such a rich visual history of this band. Sure. Um, even when all the other bands everywhere were cracking down on photographers and saying, you know, you need a press pass to bring a camera in and you can only shoot the first three songs and blah, blah, blah. The Grateful Dead always let people People bring their cameras into concerts and that's why there's these incredible archives out there of just deadheads and that's really what I was I mean I didn't uh, I didn't really get on the Grateful Dead's radar. Well, in the late 80s, when I first started shooting for Rolling Stone magazine, um, I had some assignments and I had some one-on-one situations with the band. Uh, but the first time that a Grateful Dead band member actually paid me money to photograph them was Bob Weir in 1990, I believe. It could have been – no, it was 90. Um, I was working with Rob Wasserman. He was recording his record trios mm-hmm. and obviously he had a big connection with Bob Weir and then uh, in the spring of 90 uh i did a well in in late 89 i did a portrait of garcia rob wasserman and Edie burkell which is a song that's on that trios record oh wow nice and and i was doing all this work with rob and and uh that's when bob decided he wanted to start a new solo project outside the grateful dead called weir wasserman Mm. and so uh rob wasserman's manager claire wasserman uh suggested me to bob and bob uh agreed and they hired me and I did publicity photos of Weir Wasserman and did some solo publicity photos of Bob that he needed as well. And, uh, and Bob really liked what I did. And so from there I did a couple of portraits of him. Uh, he did two children's books with his sister Mm. that he wrote and she illustrated. I did the author portraits for both of those books. What What are those books? Do you remember the names of them? Um, one of them is about, no, I don't remember, but I'm sure sure you can look it up. His sister's name is Wendy Weir, Bob Weir, Wendy Weir. I don't even remember the names of them. One of them was like an ocean themed book and one of them was like a jungle or, you know, on land themed book. And so I did both those portraits and then, you know, I just, and then they added Jay Lane into the band. It was the beginning of Rat Dog and they hired me to do a publicity photo of uh rob and bob and jay and was um, he in short shorts during this time um because the first the first photo shoot that i did with weir washman bob and rob wore like really nice like armani suits oh shit love it (laughs) that's awesome uh and then i think the rat dog shoot i don't remember i'd have to go back and look at the photos with jay but because i know he's wearing his tamil pious football shirt which was 
which he wore a lot at the same time when he was wearing his short shorts. So I don't remember. But uh, anyway, so, you know, and then and then I did a project with Nicky Hart where he hired me. He was recording some music with Baba Olatunji and mm-hmm. Zakir and uh, Armando Peraza, you know, like all the big uh, uh, Zakir. Um, uh, who was the other guy that I always oh, – Giovanni um, Hildago, you know, one of his percussion projects. So I went up to Mickey's Ranch and – um, you now know, at, so this, was, at this point, uh, at this point, sorry if you have it for for internment, but at this point, so you're, how old are you at this point? You know, when this is kind of this transition sort of stuff happened, like where are you living and like you were making money, I would assume, because this is also during the time of when, um, you know, Rolling Stones, you were, you were starting to. Correct. Yeah. So, so you were able to kind uh, of float. I mean, and, I, I mean, at this point I was in my late 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started really connecting with the band like that, uh, I mean, a little bit before that, I started getting laminates from Bill Graham Presents because I started doing a little bit of work for Bill Bill Graham. There was a guy named Peter Barsotti, uh, who sadly is no longer with us. And so Peter was the guy, he was one of Bill Graham's lieutenants, and he was the guy, started working for Bill like as a teenager, you know, in high school. Uh, but he was the guy responsible for all like the big Mardi Gras parades. Him and his brother uh, uh, Bob Barsotti, Peter and Bob, were sort of like the driving force behind all the big epic Grateful Dead things. Uh, mm. You know, Bill coming down on New Year's Eve as dressed as you know a, a giant butterfly or Father Time or yeah, all of yeah, those yeah. things. Um, all the Mardi Gras parades, all the Chinese New Year parades, uh, the Warfield in 1980 with the museum out in the lobby. Um, that was Peter and Bob Barsotti. And they and Peter was a big collector of posters and memorabilia and, and and photos. And I went in and met him and he gave me a laminate and I started shooting some pictures for Bill Graham Presents, uh, you know, not as an employee, but just as a freelancer. I don't even think they paid me money. Um, but I was like happy to get an all access laminate to be able to shoot, you know, uh, before the show start when they're, you know, fitting Bill Graham for his Eagle costume that he's going to fly across the room in and <laughs> stuff, you know, stuff like that. So, um, so I started doing some stuff with BGP first. Then I started getting some assignments from Rolling Stone magazine. I did my first assignment for Rolling Stone magazine, uh, 31 years ago next week, uh, nice. November, November 11th, 1111 magical number. <laughs> Uh, 11, 11, 1987, uh, I did my first assignment for Rolling Stone magazine, which was uh, covering a free U2 concert in downtown San Francisco. Yes. And, and that was an event that Bill Graham's people, Peter Barsotti was very involved in it. Bob Barsotti was very involved in it. They used the Grateful Dead sound system for that concert. Um, and so, you know, within, uh, within two months, uh, within two months, I did a, um, uh, an assignment for Rolling Stone magazine for a benefit that Bill Graham was doing called Blues for Salvador. And Blues for Salvador was um, – it was this benefit in Oakland that had Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, Boz Skaggs, Bonnie Raitt, Carlos Santana, NRBQ. And uh, since I had done that assignment for Rolling Stone a few months earlier, like I just started pitching them on things that were happening in the Bay Area and they were just hiring me with these assignments. So with, so I went, with the YouTube – I went and shot that. Sorry, with the YouTube picture, like that ended up, that photo, if I remember correctly, that like that ended up being like your first real, if I'm, and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but like your first real like big, like the iconic YouTube, sorry, YouTube uh, photo, right? Isn't that like one of their first well, big ones as I well? Mean, for or? me, you know, basically uh, it's one of those things. So it's actually all in the movie Rattle and Hum. You can see this whole thing go down, but basically right. Bono climbed like a 40 foot yeah. ladder up this 
piece of sculpture in downtown San Francisco and spray painted on it, rock and roll stops the traffic because there was a freeway that went right alongside the Embarcadero and where they were doing the concert. Wow. And, and rock and roll did stop the traffic. Literally, the traffic was stopped dead because people were trying to watch the concert. We did and, uh, and there's just – there just happened to be a 40 foot ladder there for Bono to climb up to, to spray paint that. So, um, you know, maybe it was a little premeditated, but that was the, that was the photo that ran in Rolling Stone. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a somewhat iconic photo. I mean, I'm also in the movie rattle and hum. You can see me down front shooting a few times, um, in some of those clips. So, uh, you know, it was a big moment for me because it was my first assignment for the magazine. And since then I've gone on to do, you know, over 300 assignments for Rolling Stone magazine in the, in the print magazine. I mean, I, Occasionally, I get stuff online and do stuff for online, but I'm talking about like you know the the legendary print magazine. Yeah, you've and done then, over and then, 75 uh, covers. And then a year ago, when Tom Petty sadly died, mm. um, Rolling Stone magazine used my photo of Tom that I took oh. at Lock In on the cover of the tribute issue well of done, Rolling my Stone magazine. Uh, on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, the tribute issue. And uh, that was my first cover of Rolling Stone magazine. It was like really almost 30 years exactly after my first assignment for the magazine. Gotcha, gotcha. That's that's so before the one with um, before because I had so you had you done you had not done covers before the one just last year for Rolling Stones. Not for Rolling Stone. I mean, I've shot hundreds of magazine covers, but for other 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 magazines, I've shot covers for Bam magazine. 50 or 60 of them and nice. guitar player magazine and uh, acoustic guitar magazine and, uh, you know, guitar world magazine. And relics and, you're involved with too. And Re- relics magazine, yeah. lots of covers for them. So I've shot lots of magazine covers, but that's the my only Rolling Stone magazine cover. Yeah. Yeah. So did it, so did it take like when you were, uh, you know, you're having all these moments of meeting, you know, Bobby and you're meeting Mickey and all this. And like, what was the moment where you like, you met Jerry and things, started to solidify for you and so the first portrait that i did of garcia face-to-face one-on-one was in january of 1991 and uh there was a magazine called the golden road which was a grateful dead fanzine uh that was published by uh blair jackson and regan mcmahon blair is one of the you know known uh grateful dead biographers and uh and so he was doing an interview with garcia and hunter and asked me if I would do the portrait for the story. And I was just like freaking out. Like this is going to be my, my one-on-one with Jerry. And, yeah. you know, I'm going to spend a half an hour with him and I'm going to shoot two and a quarter film, which is like a medium format, large, you know, for magazine covers and shoot 35 millimeter and shoot black and white and shoot color and, you know, chat with Jerry and hang out with him. And, you know, and I went to the Grateful Dead office in San Rafael and they put me in this little tiny office that was so small that I actually had to sit on the desk to get far <laughs> enough away from Jerry and Hunter. And I started shooting and I took about 15 or 20 photos. And Dennis McNally, the band publicist, said, OK, you're done. I said, what? <laughs> and I like freaked out and I shot really quickly with a motor drive. I shot uh, a whole roll of black and white, another half a roll of black and white and a half a roll of color. The whole photo shoot was three minutes long, and, wow. and Garcia got up and walked away, and and and, and went out of the sh- out of the shoot. And so, you and know, the year the of that. Is, what what year is that? Nineteen ninety one, January. Okay. You're so good with these dates. Thank you, because I'm like fascinated by everything you're saying right now. So. Yeah, well, I, I know they're everything. detailed, but go I have ahead. all my all my photographs are dated, so sure. it's easy for me to to know where a lot of this stuff falls. Yeah, um, and so. Uh, you know, it was pretty mind blowing. It was very fast. It was very little chit chat between us. 
Um, and but I was a little bit disappointed that I didn't get to spend more time with him to do what I wanted to do creatively. But it's still possibly my most iconic photo of Jerry that I've ever taken. It's you know sort of leaning down, looking over the glasses, uh, and uh, yeah. you know it's been on magazine covers. And it's I have a T-shirt of it with um, uh, AJ Mass. They turned it into a painting and then turned it into it was like a pop like um thing of sorts it's on the cover cool. of yeah with aj massey's a thing but yeah no and actually today i was like i just put on my my website i'm like oh i'm interviewing you and, and that's a picture i used like yes i hear you nice. so so he was just looking down at you at this point and you got your no, picture no no, no, you... no no he just was sort of he does this thing where i asked him to look over his glasses you know chin down looking over Damn. his glasses um and so anyway you know just one of those things but i mean i had several other opportunities um so like in 93 september of 93 i was shooting garcia and grisman for a cover of acoustic guitar magazine and we we're doing that in david grisman's living room and uh the best way to get these guys to sit for a longer period of time for you <laughs> is to get them to play music and okay. so they just finished recording a record and they just started playing music Shady grove right um, I don't remember what record it was at that time, but mm -hmm. it, it could have been one of the kids' records. I'm not uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, not for, not, um, yeah. But anyway, so they just started playing music, and then Garcia started singing. Mm. And I'm I'm the only guy that has ever told Jerry Garcia to stop singing because I'm like Jerry, just hum it in your head because if you're singing, you're gonna your mouth is gonna look all funny, and I can't use it on the cover of the magazine. Ah. And, and, and so so I told Garcia to stop singing and just Jesus. play guitar. And uh, so him and Grisman just jammed, and I got about 45 minutes with them. Uh, uh, you know, just just jamming and hanging out in the living room, and you know, uh, chatting a little bit and and whatnot. So, but you know, usually when I was shooting Garcia, it was very very much business like. There was another shoot that I did of him in '94 up at Front Street, the Grateful Dead warehouse, uh, for an ad campaign, and he got there, and I said, "Hey, do you want to look at my portfolio in case there's anything you want to see that might give you an idea?" You know, but and Garcia looked at it and, you know, in his high squeaky voice, like, yeah, man, yeah, cool shit, man. Yeah, I like your stuff. Yeah, John Lee Hooker, man. Yeah, look at that old fraud blues guy, you know, like just joking around. And, and, uh, uh, but again, like, you know, really, this, this is true for every artist like this that I photograph, whether it's Carlos Santana or Neil Young or Jerry Garcia or Bob Weir, even today. Um, you know, all these guys that have been, been in front of the, in front of audiences for 50 years now, yeah. um, all they want to do is they just want to go eat lunch. They don't want to sit there for a photo shoot. They're, they're over it. I mean, I just shot Les Claypool and Sean Lennon for their new record Jesus. a week ago, two weeks ago. Yeah. And, and Les, who I've been working with for 30 years now, you know, he loves to work with me because he knows how fast I am. Sure. You know, and, and we shot publicity photos. Well, you learned fast. Your first, your first time ever, you're just like, okay, so like, snap it yes. out. I got three minutes. This is how, yeah. And so, I mean, I did uh, one, two, three, like four different setups with Les and Sean. And, and, and the whole shoot was two hours from the time they got there until the time that they left. But we probably shot for a total of 30 minutes the entire time. Mm. The rest of the time is wardrobe changes and moving to new locations and setting up lighting and stuff like that. You know, unless, uh, you know, said to his manager, um, uh, Brad Sands, who used to be the fish tour fish, manager yeah, for yeah. 20, 20 years, manages mm -hmm. Les Claypool now. And he's like, Les was really, really happy with everything you got in two hours, you know. So, um, and, and that's part of it is being able to like, you know, not keep these guys for too long. Cause you know, Les and Sean had to go rehearse. They were playing a music festival that weekend, the Hangtown festival. And you know, they have stuff to do and he just doesn't, they just don't want to hang out in front of the camera. So when I shoot bands and do publicity photos, it's like 10 minute blasts, 
break, wardrobe change, location change, 10 minute blast. You know, you do that three or four times, you end up with a bunch of great stuff. So everybody, I just want to remind you, we are just so lucky to be sponsored by Ben and Jerry's. I mean, come on. We're like super hippie chick podcast and we're being sponsored by Ben and Jerry's. This is amazing. So just as a reminder, the holidays are right around the corner. And what do you want to give that fish fan who has everything? As I said before, I mean, yes, of course, we want all the tickets in the world. But who does not want a uh, Jim Pollock you know, designed limited edition pint of Ben and Jerry's. Um, you, this is a reminder that the real, pretty much the only way you can get this is online. So this Ben and Jerry's ice cream, it's called It's Ice. And it's a caramel malt ice cream with almond toffee pieces, fudge fish, and a caramel swirl. And uh, yes, the packaging and the very limited t-shirt were designed by our man Jim Pollock. And a portion of these proceeds will go to uh, the Water Wheel Foundation. And remember, this is pretty much, I mean, I guess like the, apparently you can get this in small, little maybe like Vermont or our friend Ryan last time around was saying you could get it in a small place in, I think it was in California maybe. But uh, really the only place you can get this is online. So uh, the ice cream and teas can be ordered at store.benjerry.com. And if you use the promo code Osiris... O-S-I-R-I-S. You can get free shipping on all orders over $50 for the rest of 2018. I know you guys know enough of fish heads that you want to spoil. And think about how freaking excited they would be if they got, you know, the It's Ice Cream uh, Pollock Limited Edition pint of ice cream. That'd be pretty cool. So there's also a special curveball fish food water wheel tea and we can that Ben and Jerry's created for the Cancel Festival event that can also be purchased at the same place online. So head to store.benjerry.com, get some ice cream. Loving the Ben and Jerry's. Thanks. We're back with Jay, and we were just, Jay um, Blakesburg, <laughs> and we were uh, just talking about um, the question that was just kind of pitched to him was, you know, how close with Jerry were you, Jay, and and during, because you kind of came in almost towards the end of it all, and, and as far as the, it seems anyway, the intimacy, intimacy, ugh, intimacy piece, <laughs> and so what was it like to watch his health issues, and how did the fame of him affect the band as a whole? Well, I mean, I was, uh, you know, I was in, in no way really a, an insider. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was not privy to all the health issues. I mean, as a fan from the outside, we could see what was going on. Um, we could see the quality of the music deteriorating. Um, when do you, when do you think that started to flip? Cause for me, 91, I love 91, uh, you know, and I was, I, I only caught, I only saw Jerry twice and then I've seen the rest of the boys a whole bunch of times, but you know, cause I graduated high school in 93 and that's when I started getting into it all. So I, I caught Jerry twice. So for me, that's just how it always was. And now that I've listened to them a whole bunch of times, I hear, you know, to me, it seemed like there was different peaks, but like there was like certain peak that was going on in 91 to me, but like, you know. Go on with that as far as what you said. 
So when Garcia came back from his coma in in eighty six, mm-hmm. uh, it really just took off in a big way. Like eighty six, the end of eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine, ninety were all really really great years for the band. They were playing strong. Jerry was healthy. Um, everybody seemed happy. You know, the, the scene was growing obviously because that was the height of Touch of Grey and mm-hmm. uh, Touch Heads and stuff like that. Um, you know, Brent, we lost Brent in 1990 and I think that's when there was another big shift. Uh, I mean, I think the beginning of those years with, with Vince, uh, had some, some sparkling moments, but I think that, uh, you know, by the time we got to 92 and 93, it started to, to start to deteriorate a little bit and Garcia's health was deteriorating and we could see it. Um, I did a shoot with Garcia in 94, uh, that shoot was for Alvarez Yairi, the guitar, the acoustic guitar that he was using at the time. And okay. uh, he came to the shoot three days late and three he looked terrible um, and uh, wow. uh, just was not a very healthy situation. And I could see it uh, in April of 95, just a few months before he died. Uh, they were filming a music video uh, in North Beach with the Jerry Garcia band mm-hmm. for a song that was in the movie Smoke, which was a movie directed by Wayne Wang with Harvey Keitel. Okay. And uh, there's a Garcia song on the soundtrack for that record. And so they're making this movie. Ashley Judd was in the movie uh, and also in the video with Jerry. And that was like my last one-on-one with Jerry. And he just looked terrible. He was sweaty and his hair was matted down on his forehead. And he looked very, very unhealthy. Uh, but you know, like I said, I was not on the inside, inside, and so you know, I was not privy to all the things that was were going on internally with the band. Um, you know, in terms of Garcia and 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 the fame of the band and the rise of the band, uh, again, you know, from my interactions with Garcia one on one, and also just what we knew about him, like he was the kind of guy that you know where people were putting him up on a pedestal. Um, you know, Jerry, the God, like guitar player, like he just, he just wanted to play music. You know, he was just like this regular guy who wanted to just play guitar all the time. Like that was who Jerry was. Jerry wasn't, you know, this, this spiritual guru. Um, which yeah, was he what sang. he was being held up onto, you know, which really stressed him out. Yeah. I mean, he, yes. I mean, he was singing these very magical words that were written by Robert Hunter, um, and Robert had a way of spinning these tales that, you know, took us on these journeys um, as fans, uh, you know, like no other songwriter, lyricist really has ever done except for a handful, mm-hmm. you know, Bob Dylan, Robert Smith from The Cure, you know, Pete Townsend here and there, or, you know, there's a bunch of them, you know, there's a bunch of one-off songs out there by all sorts of bands that we love that are amazing. Uh, but I don't think that you know, what Robert Hunter has done with lyrics is beyond what most people have ever done. And, uh, you know, and us deadheads, you know, live by those words and breathe by those words. And so, um, you know, Jerry was the one singing those words of these cosmic, you know, tales of outlaws and, you know, gamblers and lovers and thieves and mystical creatures like, you know, dragons with matches and, and things like that. And so, uh, you know, we were elevated in that situation as deadheads, uh, listening to those songs and listening to that music. 
Um, and it's pretty easy to put that person who's delivering that ah. message on a, on a pedestal, you know, especially sure. when there's psychedelics involved and you're, you know, all your, you know, your nerve endings and synapses are wide open and you're just taking this all in and you're with all these people who you love and all these fans and you're dancing and there's all this raw sexual energy yeah. swirling around and, you know, there's this music and these fans and this scene It's like pretty easy um, if you get carried away to, you know, feel like, oh my God, Jerry Garcia is God, you yes, know, and, yes. and Jerry wasn't God and Jerry never thought he was God and neither did anybody in his band. And, uh, you know, they were guys playing very, very complicated and intricate music that moved us in ways that we had never been moved before. And, uh, some people took it the wrong way and Garcia just wanted to play guitar. He just wanted to be a regular guy that played guitar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, so this is August of '95 going into it, you know, and and I just said so. Um, uh, uh, Bobby put out a uh, Netflix uh, movie called I, I, was this it the other one? Am I right with that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Did you um you saw that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, the day Jerry died. Uh, Bobby was set up to play Rat Dog at the um, Hampton um, Casino. Thank you, the Hampton Casino, and and he played that night. And yeah. so we found out Jerry died in the morning, and we all went. And by the time you know the tickets weren't sold out, but by the time you know half of us got around to it, they uh, had sold out, obviously. And we, and Bobby, still played that night. And so you know this, this is a teeny, teeny. I don't know if you've ever been to the the Hampton Beach Casino or not in New Hampshire. But it's this really small venue, and and what they did was they they took the speakers and they flipped them outside and they put them out, and everybody drove there like there was like maybe I don't know seven or eight VW buses and people's cars just right up to the steps, and all of us were just like on the roof of our cars, and and we were able to really be with Bobby that night. It was incredible, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what was it like for you when Jerry died, and what was it like for you know the rest of the band? Like where were you at when when you heard? Well, the news? I was in a car driving back to San Francisco from up in the Sierras um, and I heard about it. And so for me, it's a little bit different because um, as a photographer, um, when, when artists die, um, the media jumps on it immediately. And I'm part of the media, you know, and so as someone who had photographed the Grateful Dead a lot and photographed Garcia a lot, um, I was immediately being contacted by all of these magazines and newspapers because people wanted to pay wow. tribute to Jerry. Sure. I mean, that's, you know, like when these magazines put out these special issues on, you know, the life and death of Jerry Garcia, whether it's People Magazine or Rolling Stone, you know, I'm sure that a lot of these commercial magazines, you know, there's dollar signs involved and things like that. But it is a way that um, it helps bring people together and understand the legacy of these artists. And that's why these tributes are made and obituaries are written and, um, um, you know, magazines and, and television news stories and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I almost in a way at first was numb to it because I, all, you know, immediately went into my journalism mode. I got back, I got my camera, I went to the Haight-Ashbury. Oh, um, there were yeah, vigils yeah. in Golden Gate Park where people had bonfires and people were sitting around and singing and music. And, um, you know, I went to the corner of Haight-Ashbury and there were memorials there, uh, you know, everywhere. And so I sort of was 
I sort of became a, a photojournalist at that moment to, to capture because it was part of the, the story that I had been shooting at this point since I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I was putting, you know, pulling photos and sending pictures to magazines and, you know, talking to photo editors. And, and so it was a, for me, it was a very different form of grieving. Um, you know, I, I, I think we still all grieve to this day in different ways and, you know, the way we experience the, the music and, you know, we're very fortunate that we have, you know, Phil Lesh and the Terrapin family band and Dead and Co and, you know, Bob Weir, Don was Jay Lane and, you know, Mickey's projects and Billy's projects, because we get to hear these, uh, musicians that were there at the birth of all of this, you know, reinterpret and reinvent that songbook. And, and the Grateful Dead songbook, you know, truly is the great American songbook. Mm-hmm. And so we get to hear this music and we get to reconnect to it and we get to reconnect to Jerry when, you know, somebody else is up on stage playing his parts, whether it's, you know, John Mayer or John Katalichek or Ross James from the family band or Graham Lesh or Jimmy Herring or Warren Haynes or, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, and, uh, so, you know, it, at first it was a very weird thing. And you also have to remember that, you know, sort of leading up, you know, in the late eighties, when I was coming up and shooting the I beam and shooting bands like Jane's addiction and Soundgarden, I was shooting that stuff because I was trying to create a career for myself as a music photographer and nobody cared about the Grateful Dead and, 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 uh, contemporary popular media. You know, every once in a while, there was a small story here on the Grateful Dead or a news item or, you know, Jerry Garcia sat in with Carlos Santana somewhere or something like that. But in Mm. general, uh, the news media kind of ignored the major news media ignored the Grateful Dead for many years in the late 80s into the early 90s. And, you know, after Jerry died, of course, there was a big resurgence of interest in that. And it sort of died down again. Um, You know, the band didn't know what they were going to do. And I mean, if you look at even. Uh, you know, stuff that happened from like, you know, 95 to, to 2000, you know, there was a, there was a scene there, but it, it, it really, it really, really took until 2015 fairly well, you know, the big shows that Pete Shapiro put together to catalyze this incredible family and these group of people that, um, you know, saw the Grateful Dead many, many years ago with Jerry Garcia and, and, you know, re sparked, reignited this entire community and put it at a level that is, you know, not been seen uh, since, you know, sometime in the late 80s when they were playing stadiums Stadiums, with Jerry Garcia. I mean, it's just really incredible what the Grateful Dead scene is like right now. You also have to remember, like, in 1987, okay, think Mm -hmm. about this. In 1987, 30 years ago, 1988, 30 years ago, there was no jam band scene. There were no other bands except for the Grateful Dead and the Allman Brothers, right? I mean, at that point, there, you know, Fish was just starting to bubble up from the ether. And, you know, Mo, Mo is going to celebrate their 30th anniversary this next year. String Cheese is celebrating their 25th anniversary. So the word jam band still hadn't been coined. And there still was really no other bands in this scene that played music like these people played music. Um, And yet they weren't getting the recognition on like a really, you know, high level, public level. They were still in this, in, in the, uh, the background of it all, 
know? Yeah, mm-hmm. a- a- absolutely. And so, you know, it was a slow build, but it really was fairly well that just kind of blew it all out of the water to the point where, um, you know, people wanted to touch that magic again. Right. So, you know, we were kids, we were searching for the magic, we were searching for the spark, you know, we dropped some acid or we connected with that band, the Grateful Dead. We saw them. Some people went on tour. Some people saw them hundreds of times. Some people saw them a half a dozen time, but times, but it still touched them in this way that they couldn't quite understand or grasp at the time. And then they went off and went to college or finished college and got a career and raised some kids and became empty nesters. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, you know, fairly well happens. And they went and they had, we went to this big family reunion in Santa Clara in Chicago and everybody's minds were blown. And it wasn't because the music was the greatest music ever is because the family got back together and we all touched that magic again. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What, and, now, what was your thought about Trey being, uh, being picked? Because I know that you were, you photographed for fish during, you know, like 99 through, Oh, four, maybe a little bit into nine there. So, you know, as, as, cause I, I definitely have questions for you about, about your, your connection with, with fish, obviously. So, you know, GD 50 was a huge thing for, for Jason and I, we, we rented a uh, Mustang and, you know, we took it off and it was, <laughs> yeah, it was like our, our big like hurrah, go out to Chicago. We do, you know, we did all three nights and, and our, you know, Ronnie that's with us tonight here, he was also with us as well. And it was just, you know, as far as the world's colliding in 2015, you know, Troy, Anastasio gets picked out to be Jerry like whoa you know so I'm like what are your thoughts on that what well so so first of all you know there had been many many other you know quote-unquote dead tours post Jerry Um, you know so obviously there was further with John Kadlicek there was you know the 2009 tour with Warren Haynes and 2003 and 2004 it was Jimmy Herring and Warren Haynes um so you know we've seen a a lot of different people fill that spot um uh, you know, I was thrilled. I got a phone call from Pete Shapiro in early December 2014 that said, Jay, guess what? <laughs> he goes, I got the band back together for the 50th anniversary. And Hell guess yeah. who's going to play guitar? Trey Anastasio. Oh. And I was like, that's fucking awesome. I love that. <laughs> you know, like I've always thought that Trey would be great, you know. So, um, uh, and then he's like, and you can't tell anybody. I'm what? like, great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> this it's crazy secret. controversial secret, like, what? Uh, Trey's gonna be like, Trey's so, gonna be Jerry, quote unquote. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Trey. I think that Trey's guitar playing is next level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Fish is an incredible band. Um, you know, as you say. So I met, I, uh, you know, I started shooting fish in uh the early 90s 93 or something like that might have been my first fish show that i shot um so not that early but early enough well where do you remember uh, um might have been laguna seca might have been the first time i saw fish um and i didn't completely get it you know you also have to remember that um so jerry was still alive in 93 and you know i had already been a member of a cult um called the grateful dead for you know (laughs) 20 years. So it was kind of hard for me to say, sure, I'm going to go join this other cult called fish. Um, and so, uh, you know, I liked it and I enjoyed it. Um, and I did a story on fish for a couple magazines and did some portraits of Trey in my studio in 93 and Paige for keyboard magazine. And that's how I was first kind of met those guys. And, uh, Paige really loved this portrait that I did of him for a feature story in keyboard magazine in 1993. And that's really how I connected with the band and Brad Sands, their tour manager, the guy mentioned earlier that, you know, manages, uh, 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 manages Les Claypool and Primus and uh, Dean Ween and, and, and some other stuff. 
um, he was a big deadhead, Brad. So he knew me and I was in Arizona Thanksgiving 96 mm-hmm. and uh, Fish was playing in Phoenix. I was there for visiting family for Thanksgiving. My wife's family was from there. And um, so I went to the show and I did a portrait of Trey for a, an online music magazine that was uh, existed at the time. Uh, and, you know, sat in on that interview. And then Brad Sands was like, yeah, here are all access. Shoot whatever you want. Wherever Is that you for want. Addicted to Noise? Is that the... Yes, yes. 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 Okay, yep. yep. I, uh, founded by Rolling Stone. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Addicted to Noise was the first online music magazine. It was founded by Michael Goldberg, who was a writer for, for Rolling Stone magazine. And mm-hmm. me and Michael did a lot of stories together for Rolling Stone magazine because he was based here in San Francisco. Sure. And so anyway, so uh, in 99, when Phil put together that Phil and Friends with Paige and Trey... Um, fish management, Jason Colton hired me to shoot those shows for fish to document, you know, Trey. And that was really how I also really connected with Phil was from those shows when, when fish hired me, uh, to shoot those shows. And, uh, Phil's publicist was an old friend of mine named JC Juanis and, and, uh, Phil and Jill were like, who's this photographer that's shooting for, for Trey and Paige? And it's like Jay Blakesburg. And then they, sh- you know, she showed him a bunch of my work. And then I became Phil's photographer right after that and started shooting all the Phil and Friends stuff. Oh, nice, uh, nice. But that was pretty much. And then, you know, right after that was the Oswego show in 99 that summer. And Fish flew me out to be the photographer for that. And then, you know, back then it wasn't like now where they have a fish, a photographer on the road at every show because of the internet and Instagram and Facebook. You know, back then they would fly me into like, you know, two or three or four shows on a tour and that would be it. Sure. And I, you know, we shot film and, you know, they do a big Vegas run. I'd come in for that or they do a couple of Alpine Valley shows. I'd fly in for that or some Red Rock shows. I'd fly in for that. So it wasn't like I was on tour with the band with Fish. It was just, you know, they would, I was the Fish photographer, but, you know, there was also Taylor Crothers was doing stuff. And I think Danny Clinch was still doing stuff at that time for them. And, um, I mean, those, and, uh, those were some wild years for the boys. You know, were you involved in, in the, you know, the, the shenanigans backstage or not? Or like, what, what's, do you have any, like, no, wild, not wild at all. Stories? Not, no, no, no. You're I, like, I'm an angel. I mean, I, I haven't smoked pot since 1981 and uh-huh. I don't drink, I don't drink alcohol and, you know, I don't do drugs. And so, sure, no, sure. I wasn't, I wasn't partying. But yes, you know, I, I, you know, I was aware of it, but I was not as in tune to it because, um, you know, the internet really wasn't happening yet. And, uh, well, and you weren't, um, you weren't part of that piece. So like, the, no, the, no, the, no, the, like I, you know, I flew in and they, I, you know, g- they gave me all access. I was their photographer. They paid me money. Mm-hmm. Um, I shot their shows. I had a lot of fun. You know, at first, when I first started doing that, like when I went to Oswego, I didn't know anybody in the fish world, like mm-hmm. any of the fans, nobody, none of the, none of those people, yeah. you know? And by the time I got to Coventry, you know, like I had, a, you know, a gazillion, fish friends that had seen hundreds of shows and, you know, and I was part of that crew and met those people and was introduced to those people. And so, um, you know, like I said, I had already was part of a cult and, you know, I took me a, a little bit to become part of the second cult. Um, but still, you know, I love, you know, I, uh, when fish comes to San Francisco, if I'm here, I go see him. If Trey's in town and I'm here, I go see him. And like I said, I still think that band is incredible and, uh, I still love their music and I still love going to see them. Um, but I'm not, uh, 
I'm not a fanatical Fish fan, but I really do really love them, and I just think that they're incredible musicians, all four of them. And I love them all as people too. I think they're all super cool people. You know, I've had lots of great hangs with Trey, and at Fairly Well, I had a bunch of great hangs with Trey. And I'm, you know, Trey has you know said to me so many times that he loves my photography, and he has several of my coffee table books on his coffee table in his living room, <laughs> and and uh, you know we've talked about that, and he's you know I I make them, he's in them, I send them to him, and. He, he looks at them, you know, so, so are, there, uh, uh, are there any like huge differences when you, uh, you know, are taking photos of either the dead or, you know, fish compared to other musical acts, like say a Jane's addiction or, you know, I've seen a rapper rappers yeah, or either, any yeah. of the guys like that. Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg. I mean, you've right. Been, well, so just... I've only done portraits of Dre and Snoop. I've never done performance. Well, that's not true. I've shot Snoop in performance, I think a couple times in some festivals that he's played at maybe like Rothbury or something like that. But, um, no. So when I'm shooting a live concert, you know, my ultimate goal is to get in, is to get images that are engaging, interesting, mm. tell a story, and not just like a boring photo of a guy standing there with a microphone singing, ah, right? Yes. And so, uh, so whether I'm shooting Jane's Addiction, who has like incredible stage presence and body language and bright lights, and you know, or a, or a band like Jim James last night, who was playing practically in the dark, you know, it was a very intimate, very sensual show. Um, you know, I'm still sort of waiting for that moment of something that's just a little bit more unique and different. Um, it's funny after I left the Jim James show last night, I was like, well, I would have been fine if I just shot the last two songs because that's when he, the drummer was out there with them. It's mostly, mostly a solo Jim James show, but he has a drummer from his solo band come out and play on about, I don't know, seven or eight songs out of the 20 something songs he plays. And uh, so he interacts with the drummer a little bit. And so that he's away from the microphone. He's in the light, the very little light that they have. And I was able to get a couple of really great shots in that last song or two. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm always looking for like – and which is also funny because I shoot a lot of pictures. Um, when I shot film back in the old days, yeah. when I was shooting three songs even, I would shoot ten rolls of film and three songs. People are like, what? I shot two rolls of film. And so, you know, my philosophy is – Take a lot of pictures because yes. you're only going to shoot Jim James once yes. in your entire life on November 3rd, 2018, mm -hmm. right? And so I always was like that shooting bands. I always shot a lot of film. And now with digital, I shoot a lot of digital because I'm only going to once shoot Mo on Halloween at a Halloween show in Philly at the Fillmore on October yeah. 27th. 2018, right? Now, did so you used to develop your own film and then go through like what you'd want? Because I know now, like, because I actually, you know, I'm by no means a photographer, but I, I like to take pictures a lot. And I always have. I'm always the one that takes pictures of everything all the time since high school, whatever. And so back in the day, you know, you'd have, you'd take your roll of film. And then for me, because I'm super amateur, I'd just be like, oh, which ones are good? Which ones are just the floor, you know, or whatever. And now we have digital, so we can kind of, you know, go through them real fast. So it takes me a few, like, I like to go back and edit them or find out, you know, if I take maybe a group photo, maybe the group photo as a total isn't very good there, but there's like, you know, that awesome one that's just two of the friends in the background that really cleared out. Like, do you personally take the time at this point to go through and, you know, edit each piece? And then how was that back in the day when you actually had to develop the film versus not like, were you going through it and looking at it in a, in a dark room or... 
Um, yes and yes and yes. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> About 15 questions there in one. Right. Um, so I, um, I shot a lot of film, and back in the day, I had a dark room in my mother's basement in suburban New Jersey, and I Perfect. developed my pictures and made 8x10s and sold them in the parking lots for $2 and 8x10. <laughs> no big deal, Maz. Just Jerry Garcia is fine. Don't worry uh, about it. <laughs> do, 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 dollar and 8x10, you know, awesome. stuff like that. And, um, and which is just kind of funny because, you know, now my prints are like, you know, $500 yeah. a piece. Do those ever uh, show up? Those original uh, ones? Well, it's really funny. I actually just got a Facebook message a couple of days ago from a random guy who said, Hey, I, somebody walked in my store with four of your old photos. Um, and one of them has your stamp on the back oh, that says, you know, Jay Blakesburg with the address of the house I grew up in in New oh. Jersey, a rubber stamp on the back. And actually only one of the four photos was mine. The other three weren't mine, but it was very, very funny. And I always joke when I do my slideshow presentations about how I'm like, if you have an old eight by 10 from back in the day, I'll upgrade you to a new, a new print if you want it, you know? So just, <laughs> yeah, just you just have to come to one of my presentations and you get upgraded. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, but you know, that's how I, you know, back then, you know, we told my parents that, you know, I was out, uh, you know, making eight by 10 glossies in the dark room in the basement and selling them in parking lots for a couple bucks a piece. You know, we'd walk, we'd come back from shows with a hundred, $200 in my pocket. And, I freaking love and, you, Jay. Your life and, is amazing. Sorry. And, continue and, on. And, do, and dollar bills, you know, but this yeah. is when I was 18 years old, but really we were selling massive quantities of LSD <laughs> You know, back in and 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 from high school, but you know, oh, yeah, the front. Jeez, that's a lot of eight by ten. Yeah, right. But yeah, uh, you know, so uh, you know, you got to pay for tour somehow. Yeah. Um, you know, we some people do. sold grilled cheese sandwiches. I sold eight by ten pictures of Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir. So anyway, um, and just that, right? Uh, so yes, I developed those pictures in the dark room. Uh, in the mid eighties, uh, late, well, late mid to late eighties, I was still developing pictures in a dark room that I rented in San Francisco by about 1990. I started using a commercial black and white lab and they would develop my film and make my proof sheets. And then I would make, I still had a dark room in my studio and we would make our own prints in the studio. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I look at everything and I mark the proof sheets and I choose the shots and make the marks on the proof sheets. And now when I shoot digital, you know, if I shoot a thousand pictures at a show or 2000 pictures at a show, which is not uncommon, mm -hmm. um, I look through every single one and I decide what gets deleted and what gets kept. Wow. And then depending on what the job is or where it is, either I do the digital processing or my I have a full time digital tech who That's does the processing of work. Right. So, but I do look at every single photo that I take and I make the ultimate decision as to whether it gets kept or deleted and gets marked. Because in Lightroom, which is an Adobe product, you can catalog stuff so you can mark things with one star, two stars, three stars, oh, four yes. stars, <clears throat> you know, to sort of keep track of your favorite ones and ones you want to go back to. Now, if you're, yeah. when you're going through all these photos, is say if you're putting together a book or, you know, whatever, and you have all these photos of, you know, I'm mostly referencing your hippie chicks book. So it's not people in the bin, it's people in the crowd. Do you have to go through and get releases for all these people or how does that uh, work? No. So, um, so, and, and just to clarify, the book is called hippie chick, not hippie chicks. Oh, sorry. Um, just to clarify, and it's called hippie chick, a tale of love, devotion, and surrender. I love this. And let's, we'll, sure. we'll get into hippie chick in a minute. Yeah, I think after the, I answer this, but, um, 
So um, uh, unless our evil president changes the Constitution completely, because he is trying to change our Constitution mm-hmm. by abolishing the 14th Amendment. Um, so hopefully, hopefully by the time we're all listening to this, everybody has voted and we've taken back the House mm-hmm. um, but uh, and can stop this evil man. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States is – do you know your constitutional history? Freedom of speech. The and – and freedom of the, the yes, yes, yes. Oh, freedom of go. the feed, freedom like, don't of put the me press. on the spot here i kind of know but <laughs> right. yes, go ahead <laughs> there you go so freedom of the press and so um now if i was taking a picture of a hippie chick and wanted to make and wanted to license it to coca-cola for an ad campaign uh, I, I, I i can't do that i need a i need a model release gotcha um but an editorial product that is sold in bookstores is is the press it's a it's a published book. And so therefore, um, same thing with social media, freedom of the press. So therefore you can post these things or you can print these things and publish these things without the permission of the people in these books, because it is freedom of the press. And, and as far as, um, you know, celebrities go, musicians and stuff like that, um, again, you know, they sort of give up their right of publicity by being in the public eye. But again, like I can't go and make calendars or t-shirts, um, uh, you know, with photos of these artists and sell them because that's commercial mark merchandise. Yes, yes, and, yes. And, and that's not an editorial product. That is not does not fall under freedom of the press. My, uh, so I have I a have situation to, just somewhat recently. It was like super minute, but like I made these baseball cards for Curveball. I made uh, fish baseball cards and I cut out their heads and put it on whatever. And then I was just going to give them out just as fun for promotional stuff. And then Curveball ended, and then I had all these. Really funny. They ended up coming out really good, really, <laughs> these baseball cards. And so when I posted on a couple of fish groups, I it was unbelievable the amount of people that wanted to buy them from me. And then I ended up checking, checking in with um, Felicia, who is part of the Osiris Network. She was the, actually the woman who arranged all like the donuts for the, the uh, Baker's Dozen and whatnot. Uh, but she yeah, worked I for Osiris. Yeah, yeah, yep. she's great. So she worked for, so, for Osiris. So she was the one, because I didn't know. She was like, no, you can't use their image. So I could have like traded for them. Like, so there was some right. things going on with that. I ended up yeah. giving a bunch away, but right. yeah, you could give away or you could have sold them and went to jail. Yes. For copyright infringement. Yes. The, cop- <laughs> the copyright police would come after you. Yeah. Yeah. And I did not want that because <laughs> I was way too much like Osiris relics, female centrics, like all over the back of it, obviously. <laughs> like if yeah. a bad guy wanted to get more, not a bad guy. I can't say that. If, yeah, but uh, if could, somebody you know, wanted to get me, I would have been screwed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you gotta be careful of, you know, artists trademarks and yeah. they're you know they're they're intellectual property i mean you have to just be you have to be fair about it you know mm-hmm. so you want to talk about hippie chick i do and you know what i'm gonna say i'm gonna say we're gonna take a break and we're gonna be right back and definitely we're we are going to get into hippie trick i have some a couple of great questions about that piece all right all right we are back with Jay Blakesburg, and we are going to be talking about his amazing book that was released in the October of 2015. It's called Hippie Chick, A Tale of Love, Devotion, and Surrender. And one of the pieces in it was like Earth Mamas, Fairy Princesses, Hula Hoopers, Whirling Dervishes, Tribe of Dedicated music lovers. Um, if you have not been in the scene in the past 30 years, uh, then I don't know who has been, <laughs> Jay, because <laughs> he has a great uh, description of us uh, lovely leaders who are, who are there and, and dedicated and part of this all, you know? 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So what made it, what motivated you to create this book? So a lot of people have been, uh, so going back to like 2008, I joined Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I, within about a year, I started posting some of my older archival photos of deadheads dancing. And, uh, it got a lot of response. It got a lot of positive response. People were really into it. There was an article, uh, written in the Huffington post about my photographs, sort of bringing people together who hadn't seen each other or connected with each other in many years. And so a lot of people kept saying, you should do a book on deadheads. You should do a book on deadheads. And I really didn't feel like I had a book on deadheads. Mm -hmm. And so I started kicking this idea around about doing a book on hippie chicks. Um, So not just limiting it to pictures that I took while Jerry Garcia was alive, but, um, you know, just kind of encompassing. And I started just sort of kicking this idea around in my head. And then at lock-in in 2014, I guess it was, mm-hmm. I met this woman named Edith Johnson. Uh, she saw a photo that I took of her on Instagram and contacted me and asked if she could use it on her blog. And she has a blog called The Festival Girl. Ooh, and nice. so we started talking and I started saying that I had this idea for a book that I wanted to do called Hippie Chick. And the more I spoke to Edith about it, the more that she encouraged me to do it. And, um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this book. Like I just have all these pictures of all these fans and I know it's, I don't want to sound sexist at all. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there are some guys in this book that are more in the background, but I really wanted to concentrate on the women and and, and part of the reason is, and and you've read the text in the book. So, um, there's three essays in this book, all written by Edith, as well as an introduction also written by Edith. And, uh, and Edith is the most incredible writer, the most incredible person that I've ever worked with. I mean, she's just so absolutely brilliant and on point and just like gets it. And so, um, the first essay is called Love, and that's about how you fall in love with a band or an artist or a song or a guitar port, part or a lyric, um, how you fall in love with a scene, um, and, and devotion. Uh, and by the way, you know, love, devotion, surrender, or there's a couple of things that that's a play on. So, of course, there's a John McLaughlin record called Love, Devotion, and Surrender that came out many, many years ago in the 70s, I believe. And uh, in, the, in about 1980 – there was an article that Blair Jackson wrote. Blair was the guy who did the Golden Road magazine that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blair was a writer for a local magazine called BAM Magazine. It's a magazine that I shot many, many uh, covers for over the years. Uh, and he wrote an article about deadheads called uh, "A Tale" or called "Love, Devotion, and Surrender." Also, and so I actually called Blair and said, "Hey, I want to sort of steal your title of this magazine article." And he goes, "Well, of course, you know it's an album by John McLaughlin." I said, "Yes, I know, but yeah. to me, the reference point was always his article." And so, perfect um, chapters. Then. Uh, uh, so that was sort of where I came up with that. So anyway, so I told you about love and devotion is. Is and you, I'm sure you can relate to this. Um, all you guys can. Uh, devotion is how you're devoted to that band, that artist, that that experience, that community. You might travel long distances to see a show. You might wait online for all day so you can get a spot on the rail. You will travel and go see that band over and over and over again on the same tour. Um, you will buy their merch. You will collect their set lists. You will collect their buttons, their stickers, whatever it might be, right? You're very devoted. And then surrendering is uh, surrendering to that moment. So you're at the show and you're not thinking about the husband 
or the kids or the carpool or the rent or the mortgage or the car payment or the PTA meeting or the job or, you know, any of those things that are going on in your everyday life. You're in the moment at the show and you've surrendered to the flow, as Mm -hmm. they say. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you're in that moment to recharge your batteries, to recharge your soul. Um, and, and Edith in the essays that she wrote in the book just nails all three of those topics, like to the, to the T from a woman's standpoint, because, you know, I could take the pictures of women in those moments, experiencing that bliss, that, that excitement, that energy. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can't speak from a woman's point of view because I am not a woman. And, uh, and everybody that worked on this book, actually, except for me, was a woman. The, the person who designed the book was a woman. The woman who helped me do all the PR and marketing was a, uh, a woman. Uh, you know, the people who wrote all the text in the book. You know, besides Edith's text, there's a forward by Grace Slick, the original hippie chick from the yeah, Jefferson Airplane. Absolutely. And there's an afterward by Grace Potter. And I loved having sort of the Grace bookends in this book. And I've become good friends with Grace Potter over the years from photographing her. And um, – and uh, so that's sort of how how the book you know rounds out and and this book is not just for women. This is a book for men to understand. Also, um, you know, visually it's very appealing because there's like you say a lot of beautiful women in this book, kind of in that moment. Sure. Uh, but also just again the text and what the what Edith is saying about this experience. And then of course there's quotes all throughout the book from women that are in the book and not in the book. Uh, you know, it's funny we started going to music festivals and interviewing women at festivals. And then we found out like Edith would go back and listen to the recordings. And it was like, you know, 40 minutes of like some like tripping hippie chick, you know, rambling on about nothing. And so we, so we actually came up with a questionnaire that was like four or five questions. And, uh, you know, if it was, if the question wasn't applicable to you, then you didn't answer it. And, uh, you know, so there were questions about like fashion and how important fashion was to you and what you wore to shows and, if if you something you never thought about, then you didn't answer it. There was questions about waiting online all day so you could be on the rail and be right up front. If that's not something you did, you didn't have to answer it. You know, there was questions about dancing and there was questions, you know, so there was like four, five, six questions. And what we did was we just would meet people at festivals that I was either photographing or women that I knew. And we sent the questionnaire to, I don't know, maybe 150 different women. And I think about 80 of them responded. And those quotes are sprinkled all throughout the book. And I think that those quotes really help tell the story as well. Well, the the questions I have for you are actually based off of uh, those <clears throat> specific quotes. And, and, and I'm glad you brought up about um, Grace Slick and, you know, opening it up and Grace Potter ending it there. Um, because, uh, so at the beginning of it, she writes, we choose, so sorry, we chose to manifest our dreams rather than follow a preset norm. We chose to, f- to fly rather than crawl. We chose to experiment rather than walk through someone else's flat world. And then in the afterwards with the modern day sort of hippie check, Grace Potter, who has been doing a lot of fetish scenes, uh, she considers how women today carry on that legacy. Um, and her, you know, her quote is, we're not just the girls dancing in the front row at the concert. We are not just the wax figurines copied of our regular ancestors. So she said, we're, we are living, breathing manifestation of our path. They blaze every word. They protest every song they love. So with these quotes in mind, how have you seen the woman movement grow and or change throughout your years as an integral part of this, of uh, the scene behind the scenes? 
Juvenile. Right. Well, first of all, both of those quotes are pretty heavy duty if you really think about yeah, it for a absolutely. second. So, you know, Grace Slick was really, really, truly the most rebellious the of, of, you know, rebellious women that could possibly be out there. I mean, I mean, between her and Janis Joplin, yep. but Grace was so much more outspoken and so much more confident in her ability to be a spokesperson for that generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking back, you know, and still embrace it because she was, you know, she was a true merry prankster. Yeah. She might have been um, the first one, really, to represent us all. Yeah, right? you know, and 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 Grace was, is just an, an, an incredible person, um, and both Graces, and and then you know, you know, Grace Potter was a fish head on tour. Mm-hmm. You know, she was following the band around. Her parents were hippies. I mean, you know, she was she was on the rail dancing, and she was in the audience dancing before she achieved the fame that she's achieved as a, a musician and a songwriter. And so, you know, both of them can speak from. You know, and 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 in you know, nineteen sixty four, five, six. You know, the birth of the Haight Ashbury modern day hippie movement. You know, I was five years old, so I can't speak firsthand, but I've read a lot about it. I know a lot about the Haight Ashbury. I'm very, very um, uh, educated about the history of what happened in the Haight Ashbury in so, those years. Uh, for, a, for from a variety of sources and things that I do, I also work with the estate of a photographer who died about ten years ago named Jim Marshall, who uh, photographed the Haight Ashbury in those years like nobody else wow. did. Yeah, um, and, and you're you're in, you're like in charge of that estate, you said. Uh, I help do some work with the estate. Mm-hmm. I help manage the licensing side of the business and do, the, yeah, and do all the and do all the digital production and a lot of the editing. So they 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 put out a book called The Hate Jim Marshall's photograph a few years ago, and I did the first edit of all the photos. I looked through three thousand proof sheets, wow. um, which is you know ten thousand photos that were taken between sixty four and sixty eight in the Hate Ashbury, um, <laughs> oh and so uh, you know pretty pretty mind blowing. So. Um, you know, again, I'm a guy, right? So, you know, you're better, you know, better how, uh, you know, so Grace Slick set the stage for, for people to, to not, you know, it goes back to Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy, Mm -hmm. you know, they didn't want to have 2.3 children and live in the suburbs in a, in a three bedroom house with two car garage. Right. So all of us modern day tribe, hippie tribe members, you know, we, we, we understood that there was that spark that was out there. That magic was out there, right? We were teenagers. We had these hopes and dreams that someday we would find this magic in our lives. And whether we found it with fish or the grateful dead or psychedelics or, um, a group of people or some other music, we touched that magic. Right. And we knew that our lives were never going to be the same. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, we didn't want to be like, you know, uh, you know, like the Grateful Dead song, you know, not like other girls, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, that probably applies to you and it applies to all your fish friend girls. Absolutely. And it, applies, and it applies to all your deadhead friend girls, you know, not like other girls because you can probably walk down the street any day of the week and look at other women and know you are not like them, Mm-mm. right? Um, Found the muggles. It, <laughs> it's like the the uh, Harry Potter reference, <laughs> you know, the muggles. Okay, right. <laughs> and so, um, you know, there are there are you you know the women of your tribe and you know when you get together and there are women in your tribe like you you have kids and mm-hmm. you're dealing with carpools and you're dealing with all this stuff but you still always gravitate back to that live music experience because you know that that's a place where you're at home your family is there your people are there your music is there you can let loose 
Um, you can what you were saying book. before is like recharge it all, you know, like that's what yeah. it was. Like. I only got two Albany shows this past fall, but it's like I'm I'm reset. I'm ready to go. I can, you know, keep going. And, and when it becomes your life like this, you know, I'm, I'm 43 and I've been doing this for 24 years, so almost 25 years. Right. It's more than what I was beforehand, you know, so it's it, it is everything. So, right. Mm-hmm. Like I say, you can't quit the mob. No, <laughs> you can't. It, you know, and, and, and in essence, that's what we've become, you know, yes. you know, uh, we've become part of this, the scene, you know, we are, we are part of the fabric of this scene and, and, uh, you know, the women, um, you know, like there's a photo that, that is in hippie chick, uh, of this beautiful woman who I later found out is a fashion model. And I think she's holding like maybe a beer and a, and a, um, cell phone in the photo, but I loved the photo because I loved what she was wearing. And you know, when I took the picture at, do you I remember what was, page that was on? I just have, uh, I have the book I next don't to me. have it in front of me, but you know, she, I, I feel like that picture was taken at gathering in the vibes. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of people, when I, I think when I posted on Facebook, it created this whole dialogue of people that were like, you know, she's not a real hippie chick because you know, she's holding a beer and look at the way that she's dressed and blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. and I'm just like, dude, the girl's 19 years old. I met her at the show with her parents who have been going to dead shows for, you know, been seeing live music for 25 years. You know, yes, she's a hippie chick. You know, yes, she fits this mold. Yes, she goes and see live live music. Like you can't you can't define somebody by how many fish shows you've went to or how many dead shows you've gone to. Um, or you what know. you're wearing or what you look like. I actually, somebody, uh, a woman in one of my groups, um, I had said that I was, I, I was going to be interviewing you and, and one of the, the th- it was just this one woman, she responded, she said, I don't feel like there was enough representation of hairy armpits in his book. And for me, I didn't shave my armpits for 10 years. I mean, that was a big part of the hippie scene for a long time. And I looked through it and there are some pictures of the, of them, but like, is that something that you've had backlash from or anything like that? There, there was a little bit of backlash here and there, and I think that that same woman probably posted on my Facebook page somewhere. You know, there's not, <laughs> yeah. there's not, you know, like somebody saying, you know, there's not enough ethnicity in your book. Well, of course there's not. Look at, you know, look at who goes to see fish in the Grateful Dead in the Jam Band yeah. world. It's a, you know, it's a white suburban population. You know, yeah. it's not. There's not a lot of African American women. There's not a lot of Asian people. You know, they're there. But that's not my fault that yes. there's not, you know, I mean, I'm photographing what's in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, there was a backlash that people felt like I didn't, you know, I didn't shoot as, enough older hippie chicks. And again, there are people, there are women in the book that are definitely over 40 and over 50. We look again, good. You know, like <laughs> uh, 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 I wasn't looking for you know, like I wasn't looking to take a picture of a woman because she was at a concert, whether she was 10 or 50 or 70. Sure. I was looking for pictures of women that that I felt like were in that moment. Right. So if you look at this book, you know, there is a little bit of fashion in it because I think, you know, people would look at hippie chick and they'd be like, you know, I could look at these photos and these photos could be taken in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. Like, mm-hmm. you know, these pictures are timeless. And that's what I was looking for. I was trying to capture this this timeless experience, whether it was in fashion, music, you know, what was going on. But I was looking for people that were in that moment and experiencing that moment. Just like when a band is on stage, I'm looking to capture them in that moment, in that experience, in an energetic, visually exciting way. That's what I was trying to capture in Hippie Chick. Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to capture 
you know, like, oh, there's a 60-year-old woman with hairy armpits walking down the path at sure. Gathering of the Vibes. I should take her picture so somebody get to, doesn't get mad at me when I make this book in three years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's not what I was doing. I was trying to capture the essence of what I felt like was this um, vibe, um, this experience. And, you know, and, and maybe I failed in some points. And came up short in some points, but I did the best that I could. Well, this was your vision. Um, it has nothing to do with failing or not. You know, I mean, we're here or we're not or whatever it is. And the fact of the matter is, is, I mean, if this is something that was put out in 2015, the way of I mean, I start, <laughs> I'm like, I stopped shaving in 94 and started back in around, you know, 06, 07 sort of thing. And so if this was in 15 and that was your vision after that, then that wasn't what was going on in the scene then, you know, like there wasn't yeah. piece of that, you know, one of the, one of the um, quotes I was going to say. Well, gonna, it's, it's, it's different for everybody, you know, in terms yeah, of, you know, sure. how, not how saying they that just, they're not so there and around. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I know, I know deadhead women that in 1980 and there's pictures from that book goes from 1980 to yep. 2014 right? Yeah. There's, you know, 30 something years of photos in that book. But I know women that, you know, when they were 18, 19, 20 years old, were wearing flowing skirts and, you know, Indian print skirts and Indian shirts and tie dye shirts. And by the time they started going to see fish, they were wearing mini dresses, you well, know, and mini and mini skirts yes. and, you know, and, and leotards and wearing makeup. And, you know, they might've been not shaving their pits in 1980, but in 1990, they were wearing makeup to yes. shows. You know? Jay, I was going to, yeah, I was going to say, like, one of the quotes I pulled out of there is, like, the music moves my soul. This is from Kathea B. I think it's Kathea. Uh, the music moves my soul and it's inspires it's me. It's Katia. And Katia. That's the woman I, and that's the woman I was talking about who's the fashion model. Oh, perfect. That, well, of course. And that's what, yeah, that's funny. So her, so Katia, um, her quote is, the music moves my soul and inspires me to dress the way I do. My festival fashion helps me to flow to the music. And what I wrote after that was, you know, I'm curious about your take on how fashion is a part of the culture. Because when I joined the tribe in 94, we wore patchwork. We didn't shave. You know, there's dreadlocks around. And now, you know, and it was right around that turn of the, you know, 09 going 010, whatever, you know, women are sequins, short skirts, glitter. Um, you know, what is your take on the change? And do you have thoughts on this? And do you think this is more of a culture change from, from the lot? And, and, you know, how did that affect the lot scene in general? It's not a cultural change. It's an individual change. Mm -hmm. Okay. You started, you started shaving your armpits because yeah. you grew up yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you were changing as an adult. Sure. Okay. And I think that it's an individual thing. So I think that, you know, when, like I said, you're 18, you're 19, you're 20, you're a lot younger, you're wearing different clothes, you're wearing mm -hmm. flowing clothes, you know, all of a sudden you're 30 and you're yep. still going to shows and maybe you're, you know, you're shaving your legs, your arms, you're, um, you know, wearing makeup, you're putting glitter on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have a 22 year old daughter and, you know, and she's got piercings and she's, you know, she goes to shows and she, you know, she goes to fish shows and, you know, she loves this kind of music also. She's in the scene and she wears a lot of like, you know, third eye bindies and stars and glitter and gems on her face and stuff like that. And, you know, sometimes she wears tie dye. Sometimes she wears a Primus t-shirt that's torn. She wears a lot of black, but she's still, you know, a psychedelic hippie like anybody else. Yeah. You know, I think it's a very personal, individual expression of who you are at that time in your life. 
Um, and I think that as you get older, yeah, you're not wearing as much hippie garb. And a lot of people also, when they're 18 and 19 and 20 years old, you're wearing hippie garb because that's all you can afford to buy. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, like you're wearing I made same, my shit. You know, yeah. You, you're making your own clothes. You're patching your clothes when they get holes in it because yeah. you're living on tour and you can't afford it. You know, you can't afford to go and buy a $200, you know, silver yeah. foil mini skirt with, you know, you know, some other black, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, absolutely. but then all of a sudden you're 30 years old and you might have a career. You might be a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer point, or, Jay. Good you know, point. Thank you. Yeah. Or anything. And you're like, okay, I can afford to go on tour and stay in the Hilton instead of on a sleeping on the floor of a budget inn. you know what I mean? <laughs> Don't um, know what you're talking about. You know, uh, your life all. changes, you get a career or you get a yeah. job or, you know, or and you, you find yourself, you know, for me, like I, you know, those early, you know, I was 19. I did my first summer. I got into a 93, 94, but my first summer full fish tour was 96. And I was, I was 20. It turned 21. And so I was looking for something to define me. And they, that was it. It was a lot scene. So, you know, I've joked about in the past that I had the patchwork clothes. My dog name was Caspian. My cat's name was Post Nut Bag. I sold freaking burrito. I was a walking cliche, but I loved it because it was something I was part of. Yeah. You know? And then coming course. back after the hiatus, then it was, no. I'm I'm freaking Donnie B. I got this. I'm going to wear my kids like sparkly skirt. Like I'm, you know, we joked about it, calling it like a lot ho look, but it's okay. <laughs> like, you know, I love the fishnets and the, you know, the boots and everything. I ended up barefoot in the short skirt anyway, dancing, you know, but yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, and so the fashion is just different for everybody depending on where they are in their life. It's not a, I don't, you know, within our scene, um, you know, culturally, it's based in the Haight-Ashbury and what hippies were wearing back then. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, in 1965 and 66, you know, women were wearing skinny jeans that were, you know, crop jeans, a little bit short, right? Go look at fashion magazines from 65 and 66. You know, that's what women were wearing. Look at what Audrey Hepburn was wearing and stuff like that, right? And these were hip women, right? And, you know, that came back decades later again. But as far as the hippies go, you know, nobody was wearing tie-dye in 1965. Yeah. Um, no. You know, they were wearing thrift clothes and flowing hippie skirts. And, you know, and so, it, 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 you know, what goes around comes around and it keeps switching. But again, there are some cultural reference points of where it started, Um back in, you know, the mid sixties and, uh, it, you know, it continued to evolve and change, you know, I mean, in the seventies, look at what women were wearing in the seventies, high-waisted jeans with big platform shoes and yeah. crop top shirts. And, you know, I mean, my daughter wears that today. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. It, um, it all ends you up know, around. What goes around comes around and it's just like your own personal style and what you gravitate to and, you know, what you're influenced by and what makes you feel comfortable. Sure, sure. You know, like, I mean, today I wear jeans and T-shirts, you know. In 1980 and 81, I wore, you know, baggy drawstring purple pants with, you know, orange Indian shirts. Yeah, you know, well, you got to think about like the Django's back in the day, like you know, like two point when it was just like that, those big giant bell bottoms and the you know that whole thing where the the patchwork kind of started to fade out a little bit. But when we all came back as adults, we all came back as parents. You know, I went to my first fish show in '09 at um, it was the fourth show in it was at um, Fenway, and I wore my old long long skirt, and it. I hadn't worn that probably since my last fish show and it would just, 
but I was like, oh, this is my uniform in a way, you know, I was like, I'm going to go back. I'm going to wear what I wear at fish shows. And it just like, nope, that was the last time I ever wore a long skirt ever, right. ever since then. It was a short skirt because I'm like, no way. Like I can't move in that sense. But back then right. that did define me. That did. Yeah. That was part of me. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the fashion side of it all. Yeah. So, um, so question. So there's a, the quote by Jordan a in here and it says, uh, to be physically close to the creation of emotional, um, music, uh, evocation evocation am i pronounce that right word right so emotional evocation. yeah yeah evocation music amplifies the music and passion and thrill it's powerful and sexy and transcend uh transcendent um so i believe that we're part of this culture that sees this as a powerful um as powerful and music exudes sexiness within dance and often sometimes drugs do enhance this piece um, so, you know, there is a darker side to this whole, whole thing. You know, they got the Me Too movement and whatnot. Do you feel that you've seen a decline or whatnot in the, how women are safe in letting themselves go to this, to me, incredibly powerful, um, strong piece of me, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, Sophia Callisto, uh, she's one of the women, she just started the music empowering music, uh, as a photographic anthology of, women fish fan and women fish fans. And she's starting this, this amazing uh, project with that. And so with that, like, and what I see in your book is that this sexiness, this um, is powerful to women where we're in this like weird dark space of this me too, me too movement. So what are your thoughts? on So I'm sure there's sexism and I'm sure there's quote unquote me too activity that happens in our world, fish world, dead world. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it, I'm sure it's, it exists. I think that in general, in our space, it's a safe space and that people, um, you know, with the exception of the occasional, you know, overly drunk frat boy who doesn't know how to behave. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we are in a safe space and, you know, as long as women are not being, um, harassed, um, then I think it's okay. And I, you know, again, like with me and my camera, um, I think that people, you know, a lot of people know who I am and know what I do. And so I might get, um, a little bit more entree into that scene without resistance. Sure. Right. And I think that, um, you know, like at fish shows, even if I'm go down, you know, go down front, there's enough people that know me that the people who don't, they'd be like, Oh no, he's okay. You know, back in the day at dead shows, a lot of people wouldn't let me take pictures of them because they thought I was a narc. Remember ah. that word? A narc. You know, we were, <laughs> yeah. we were joking. We were joking about in Almost Famous. There's that line where Francis McDormand says, you know, somebody says, you know, they don't – that uh, where the kid says, I don't want everybody to think I'm a narc. And, and Francis McDormand, his mother says, what's a narc? He goes, you know, a narcotics officer. And she said <laughs> – What's wrong with being a narcotics officer? <laughs> you know, not so, <laughs> You know, I, I get, I get, um, you know, Facebook messages and emails all the time from people, Instagram messages that saying, "God, I wish that I let you photograph me back in the day, but I was always so scared because I was a drug dealer or whatever." Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, there were there were a lot of people doing sketchy, sketchy things with sketchy behavior back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, so, you know, in general. Uh, you know, and, and, it, you know, what I do could easily be construed as being a little bit on the edge of, you know, me too, or creepiness or whatever. But for me, I find beauty 
in the movement of dance and always have. I've always been intrigued. I mean, you know, I still love going to see musicals on Broadway with dance and all that. Mm -hmm. Like, I love that stuff. Like, it brings a tear to my eye. Like, body movement, you know, choreographed body movement, non-choreographed body movement, to me has always turned me on. Yeah, your intentions are to capture beauty and love and joy and passion and bliss. It's not about sex, even though it is sexy. Right. It is sexy. And and I am a guy and I am a heterosexual man. And I do like, you know, seeing women in that situation and moving and grooving Mm -hmm. um, because to me it's interesting. And and, and like you said, it's sensual. Like I'm not looking at when I'm taking those pictures, I'm not looking at it in a sexual way at all even though what these women might be doing might be very sensual and sexual to themselves. You know, I was having a whole conversation with another friend of mine about how, you know, music brings out her sensual um, side of her musical experience. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and you know, and I have photographed this friend of mine in that situation and, and for her, like she recognizes it and she embraces it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so she's not trying to hide from it. Um, I have this it brings incredible, her strength and comfort. Um, I have this incredible photograph of my friend Kate uh, Fisher, mm-hmm. who's a fish girl, lives in Santa Cruz, um, with this other woman named Julie at a fish show two or three years ago. And it's, you know, it, it's post my hippie chick book, but it's like one of my favorite photos because these girls have been going to see fish for so long and they're so in the moment and so, I mean, they're touching each other and the, you know, and both of them are married and the way they're touching each other and the way that their bodies are interacting with each other, it was just really super magical. And for me to be able to capture that moment in a split second in a photograph was really exciting to me. Um, and, and so that's what I'm going after. I'm not trying to, you know, capture, um, you know, the, the creepy sexual side of this, which I'm sure, you know, listen, we live in a weird society Mm -hmm. where people do weird things with, you know, their minds. And (laughs) that's not, that's not my intention. Um, but I do like capturing that and I enjoy that. And it, and it, um, and it, uh, it excites me not in a sexual way, but in an, a creative artistic way. Yeah. Well, and that's then, and I feel like that's our culture, you know, you know, if you really like, I know that there's creeps, I know there's jerks, blah, 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 blah. I'm Tom Sarton. Mike, take all that piece out of it. Like our men and our women, like, like put us up on these pedestals of beauty and dance and strength. And like, I feel my best when I'm on lot. Like I really do. And like, I've got a very, very, you know, successful and wonderful occupation. I'm a great mom and yada, yada, and awesome wife and all that. But like when I walk onto lot, like that's my, it's not like time to shine, but it's just, there I am. I'm home. It's my other piece of me. And, yeah. and that is so strong and confident and beautiful. And I want to find the women who may or may not have that, that same confidence as I do. And, and being now like, you know, when I walked onto the Grateful Dead at 93, 94, I was just a baby. So I was not, you know, quote unquote, an elder, but now at 43 on fish lot, and this is what I do and what I own and what I am, um, to be that person that could potentially help anybody, you know, move through the strength and the beauty that mm-hmm. we are, you know, that's a big part of where, you know, female centrics came from, you know, with Tom saying like Tom Marshall saying, Hey, we're going to, you know, do you want to be the first, you know, female fish, 
podcaster. Sure, let's do this. And I immediately found Sophia Callisto, and who's doing the women empowerment book, and uh, Bethany Barker, who runs Fish Chicks and whatnot. You know, um, because there, there's a lot of Wait, beauty out uh, there. Doesn't Jen, doesn't Jen Kessler do Fish Chicks? Fish Who'd Chicks. You say does? Yeah. So Fish Chicks does. So Jen Kessler does Fish Chicks on. Um, uh, sorry, Instagram. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so, but I'm talking about the Fish Chicks group on Facebook, which are okay. unfortunately it's like the Fish Chicks. So Jen is a photographer, and she's been taking pictures of Fish Chicks for a long time, like a long, you know, a lot of women on right. that line. Yeah. Um, well, but, she's an artist. She's a painter. She's a, you know, I think her, most of her pictures are just with her phone, but she's an incredible painter, Jen Kessler. She did like all, the, she did all the donut photo uh, paintings around Baker's Dozen and whatnot. Awesome. Yeah, I love, yeah, I know that I, they wanted to connect with her too. With uh, you know, yeah. when Tom was going to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she her her art's great. She'd be a good one to have on your podcast. Um, so um, <clears throat> sorry. So one my one last question on that. So people on the outside of the hippie counterculture may see us all looking the same. So you've been witness to many festivals, Grateful Dead, Fish, and just festivals that aren't involving Grateful Dead and Fish. What are the differences that you see within these microcosmos within the hippie culture that maybe people on the outside don't necessarily see? They just see, oh, hippie versus what we can see. Like I can pick out a deadhead versus a fish head versus a, you know, not those two. <laughs> more um, so. mm-hmm. Well, you know, being a hippie is certainly a state of mind. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think being a hippie is not necessarily just how you dress sure. uh, or the length of your hair if you're a guy or a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that being a hippie is, you know, what's in your heart and your soul. Um, you know, I think that as hippies, you know, uh, I think it was Peter Coyote, uh, who was a digger in the hate Ashburn. I don't know if you know what the diggers were in the hate, but they fed a lot of the homeless hippies in the sixties and the hate and Peter Coyote is a famous actor as well, but he was an original digger. Um, I think that he's the one who once said that, um, the hippies were right. We were right about the food. We were right about the environment. Uh, we were right about the drugs and we were right about the music, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, you know, like the entire organic food movement really in a way came out yep. of the hippie movement, yeah. you know, the entire environmental movement, recycling, you know, even as down to basic recycling pretty much came out of the hippie movement, you know, first place like, I started you know, learning about it. Absolutely. Um, you know, renew, refresh, you know, re, you know, re, re, renew, refresh, reuse. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, those are hippie mantras. And so I think walking down the street, you know, like if you have a group of hippies together in a parking lot at a fish show or a dead show or whatever, you know, the average person who is not initiated into that scene at all might not be able to tell the difference. Uh, but I think in general, you know, and this is not true across the board because it never could be. Of course. But I think that, you know, a lot of us that have experienced that hippie lifestyle um, are more open, we're more acceptable, uh, uh, accepting rather to different people, environments, situations. Um, you know, I want to say that, you know, we have a lot of good in our heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that might not just completely come through with the clothes that you're wearing. I mean, you could be in a business suit man or woman and still be a hippie and we still have everywhere. a lot of good, good they in your, pop good up in, all over the time place don't they good, my insurance yeah. inspector guy came by to like checked out my house the other day and my license plate is uh is a game hedge license plate and so he walks past and he's like 
nice game, nice, nice uh, license plate. And I hadn't listened to the Halloween set. It was uh, the November first. I was like, oh my goodness, I wasn't expecting you. Like, don't tell me. No, I don't know. I was like, I know you know, but yeah, no, they pop up everywhere. My son, my son's bus driver. He's like, ma. I got a dead header and fish head. That's all he plays. <laughs> We're driving, right. you know, like, yeah, we are we, everywhere. We are everywhere. So, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So to wrap this up, you are on like in the middle of a big uh, tour in a sense of uh, your presentation, which is, if I'm standing correct, is between the light and dark, the grateful uh, dead. Between the dark and light. Thank you. The great- thank you. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, yeah. So I have a couple of different presentations that I do. Um, I do these speaking gigs uh, around the country. I just did one in Connecticut last Sunday. Um, and I've got these three coming up in South Florida at the end of November. I'm doing um, uh, Mexico at Dead & Co. I'm going to do one, a couple of them down there. Uh, so I have two different presentations. One's called Chasing the Light, the, the rock and roll photography of Jay Blakesburg. And the other one's called Between the Dark and Light, which mm-hmm. is a takeoff on my first Grateful Dead book that I did of the same name. Uh, Between the Dark and Light, the Grateful Dead photography of Jay Blakesburg. And I do these different ones depending on what the situation is. And uh, so, yeah, so and at the end of November, on the 27th, 28th, and 29th of November, I'm going to be in South Florida. So on the 27th, I'm going to be in Miami Beach, Florida at the Miami Beach JCC. JCC, okay, on, that's what I have. On November 20 – and and so I do my presentation I think at 7.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. It's about 75 minutes long. Uh, sometimes if I'm on a roll, it can go a tiny bit longer. Um, and, uh, and immediately following, we have a Grateful Dead tribute band called Unlimited Devotion playing, and they've got a special guest, of uh, Roosevelt Collier, playing with them. And, uh, and then the next night I'm at the Davy, Florida JCC, uh, and that's, uh, Davy, Florida is right next to Fort Lauderdale. Okay. And, uh, I believe that website is, uh, DP for David Posnack, JCC, dpjcc.org. Yep. We'll have all the things. And I think the sure. Miami beach one is MBJCC, Miami beach, jcc.org. And, uh, so in Davy, Florida, I'm going to do my presentation, the grateful Dead presentation. And then immediately following that, I'm going to interview O'Teal Burbridge on stage for about an hour as part Perfect. of that evening. There's uh, no music at that one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's on November 28th. And then on November 29th, I'm going to be in Tampa, Florida at a bar called Skipper's Smokehouse. And uh, Skipper's Smokehouse uh, has a Grateful Dead tribute band called Uncle John's Band that plays there every Thursday night. And they've done that for like 30 years now. They've actually done, I think, 1,018 consecutive Thursday nights where Uncle John's Band has played at Skipper's Smokehouse in Tampa. And so they're going to play a set of music and then I'm going to do my presentation (laughs) during their set break. And, um, and, uh, and then I'm going to, uh, then they'll play another set of music afterwards. And so those are the three, uh, last three gigs of 2018 that I'm going to do. Uh, Skipper Smokehouse, I believe is a free night of music in me. Uh, the JCC events I think are about 15 or $20 for a ticket. Um, so you can, you know, buy your tickets in advance on the websites of those, uh, JCCs, Miami beach and Davie, Florida. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I mean, I love that you're so active, you're still moving, you're still going through it all. And, and really, Jay, thank you so much because I, this interview has been just 
fascinating, absolutely fascinating to me. And I'm sure our listeners as well, you've had an incredible life that, you know, uh, our family, you're just integral part of who we are and, and documenting it all, you know? Well, you're welcome. And thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's fun stuff. You can't make this stuff up, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, you know, like, like you said in the beginning of our, of the podcast, you said, okay, 1978 go. Yeah. Right. You know, like, I mean, if I were to look back, you know, 40 years ago to 1978, you know, I would have never in a million years thought, okay, I'm seeing my second Grateful Dead concert, right. you know, and I'm photographing them. And in 38 years or 37 years, um, they're going to hire me to shoot their 50th anniversary celebration uh, in, in, in Soldier Field in Santa Clara, California. You know, like how could you ever in a million years think about that? You know, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I just did what I did. And, and uh, uh, I mean, you know, you know, there was, we didn't even talk about the fact that I went to prison when I was 19 years old for LSD <laughs> no. for, for, for eight months, you know, I mean, uh, we could so have like all... a part two, three, four and five, quite honestly, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, so there's just a lot of, you know, things that I've done. I always like to say that we are the sum of our experiences. Mm. So go out, see live music, have those experiences, connect with people, talk to people, engage with people, and you will have a more interesting, uh, uh, life. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, you'll have more fun and it'll just be a, you know, a better life when you go out there and you connect with people and, and talk to people and, and have these joint experiences with your friends and your freaks and, and your so family. so much joy and so much joy. Don't be afraid of joy. Don't be afraid to spend a couple extra bucks instead of the whatever. Like, just that, do that it. Would be, yeah. That would be a great T-shirt or a bumper sticker. Don't be afraid of joy. Yeah, yeah. You know? I like that. <laughs> it's all yours. You, you own it, babe. It's all yours. <laughs> all right. Awesome. All right. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining us. It really has been an honor and, um, and, you know, one of these days we'll connect when one of us are on the same coast together. And Excellent. And then just one last thing. Yeah, I'm just going to give myself do. a little plug. Please if do. People want to try. People want to try and find me on yes. Instagram. I'm just at Jay Blakesburg on Facebook. I'm Jay Blakesburg photography. Mm -hmm. And my website is Blakesburg.com. And, uh, um, if you are interested in buying any of my books, signed copies, you can just go to rockoutbooks.com and order books and send me an email with who you want your book signed to. Um, it is the holiday season. So come and do your holiday shopping with me, um, support the arts. Um, this is how I make a living as a photographer and, um, selling my art and working for artists and whatnot. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're looking for the perfect gift, please come to rockoutbooks.com and check out what we got. Yes, and, and for uh, everybody to know too, that's all in our, in our, it'll be in our show notes on, on uh, our, where we, where we uh, put our, our podcast up as well. So. Excellent. And thank you and your team for doing this on a Sunday afternoon and taking the time and yes. um, we'll be in touch and we'll talk to you soon. All righty. All right. Thank you so much, Jay. Take care, hon. Thank you. Right. Bye. Bye. All right. Welcome back. And thank you, everybody, so much for being part of this. Uh, our interview with Jay Blakesburg would not be possible without you. Um, we are thrilled to have the amount of subscriptions we have. Pass the word because this is just so awesome. Jay was an amazing person to really interview. So much more and and that you know, such an integral part of our scene. So, um, don't forget that we are part of the Osiris podcast network. You can check us out on OsirisPod.com and there are about 30 different, uh, different podcasts on there, lots of different fish and 
Grateful Dead, there's history and uh, craft beer. You know, it's pretty much you name it, we got it. So check us out on there. And uh, yeah, don't forget to subscribe, review us, give those those five stars if you're loving us. So that's that. Peace. <laughs>